If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our series on living as exiles. On one hand, today's passage is incredibly simple, not hard to understand. But on another level, it is a bit of a challenge and simply because we're dealing with the concept of fear. The idea of fear before a holy God. And what does that mean? What does that provoke in us? When I was a kid, uh, I remember one of my absolute favorite movies to watch was the old Clash of the Titans. Absolutely terrible, terrible special effects. Little clay monsters. But as long, I mean, this is terrible, but as long as a monster was losing, its head, then that was kind of cool to watch as a little nine, 10 year old boy, even though I knew it was clay. But actually introduced my son to the concept of uh, Greek mythology through the updated version, not encouraging you to go see it. It's actually, or not go see it, but watch it in your home. It's, It's a terrible movie pretty much. But for the most part, I actually intentionally wanted to give him the idea of Greek mythology to a little bit because it is part of even what we do in education as we look through history and as we look at really what does it look like in men's unabated concept of what God is, who God is, what God needs, and what we have to do in order to please Him. I I don't know of a, honestly, I don't know of a much better place historically to look than Greek mythology to see what does it look like if men were to fashion God in His image. Now, While we certainly would push aside any of the concept of Greek mythology, uh, Nordic mythology, any other kind of mythology being something that's valid, I do think there, again, is validity in us seeing what it does with the human element. And certainly, when you look at the precociousness of the gods, that they needed the love and the worship of men. They needed this to survive, to thrive. In fact, they feel weaker if men don't worship and give them love. And so therefore in rebellion, men, what they would do if they're not given everything that they want in this world to make this world a kingdom, they starve the gods of their affection. That's not our God. But you do see at least the concept of fear because in the midst of this, what you see is over time, Hades is actually then taught to not thrive on the love and the worship and affection of humans, but actually to thrive on their fears. So he causes disruption and oftentimes would be allowed to go do something that would cause humanity to, out of desperation, cry out to the gods. But for him, as long as he could create fear, this was the thing that would fuel him the most. You know, it's interesting now that you, if we translate that over into the West, honestly, even though we certainly wouldn't be given to this polytheistic view this idea of there being an Olympus of anything uh, even remotely close. The thing is, though, many of us do have a bit of this view when it comes to what it means to fear God. Now, for non-Christians, that fear can be all over, the, all over the map. But if there is a fear of God at all, oftentimes that fear is assuaged in a very Greek mythological kind of way, which is to do good things, to do something good, which frankly is every other religion on the planet. If you want to assuage the fear the fear that you have of God, of his wrath, or perhaps him looking upon you in eternity and and you thinking that perhaps you're good enough to make it, you'll do good things. You'll go to church. You'll be nice to your mom. 
You'll make sure you remember birthdays and just do some nice things. And, and really more importantly, you just don't, won't do anything terribly bad because certainly, uh, you know, it, it, there, there's some kind of seating capacity for those uh, in Hades or in hell that are for those who actually have done the really bad things. So if you can avoid that, but again, that's not truth. That's not scripture. Scripture tells us that there's actually no good that any of us can do because inside of all of humanity ever that has been made, there's nothing in us that is inherently good. Once Adam, who was perfectly made and perfectly created, once he chose along with his wife Eve to sin, every other human, according to the scriptures, which we hold to be absolutely true, is born sinful. Even the good things that you do, you do for sinful reasons. You do it to make yourself feel good, to earn a place or a seat at the table, if you even believe there's a table in the eternals. The fact is, is that we have something in us that relates to this fear. Now, even for Christians, though, even though we believe we're saved by grace, many of us live in a fear that God is perpetually unhappy with us because of our behavior. Now, that gets closer to home. You may feel a little distance in the illustration of Greek mythology, but you, you might have at least some kind of, okay, I can see where that is God being made in the image of man, and that is kind of reflective of that. But when it comes down to it, many of us are very legalistic when it comes to our sanctification. Maybe not our justification. We believe it was by grace alone that we were saved only by realizing we were sinners in need of a Savior. We confessed our faith in Him and a risen Christ, and we asked Him to not just come in, but to rule and to take over, and we wanted to follow him the rest of our days. Simple enough, straightforward. But in our sanctification, many of us live in this perpetual sense of God's displeasure because we don't seem to be progressing, at least the way that we think we should. In many ways, the sermon this morning is for you, is for you to find relief, for you to find comfort, um, but also, hopefully, to realize that, yes, biblically speaking, fear is not a bad thing, actually. In some ways, fear of repercussions, fear of consequences is something that God uses to protect and guard us, but the design biblically is that our motivation to avoid sin or avoid bad things is not out of fear, but hopefully it would graduate to love and that we don't want to do things that are evil or vile because we love Christ, but not just to avoid doing sinful things, but actually then to do the things and practice the things that we know deepen and sweeten our fellowship with him. So honestly, fear is a motivator. The scriptures say the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. He is a God who watches. He is a God who knows. But we need to be careful about how we characterize this God who knows and sees and will judge. Because as we move along, in this world, in this life, we have to remember that if we have been established with him as a child, as an adopted child, forever secure with him as our father, he continues to be our father. So the fear of the Lord for the believer is not one rooted in insecurity, as if this relationship with, from child to father can somehow be undone, either altogether which we would reject for those who are truly in Christ, you cannot have your salvation undone. But there's lots of points on the scale from there, right? Where we feel like it's just really insecure that maybe he's just not gonna give us the blessings that we desire or whatever. And we feel like that's because, well, look, as we look at our text today, I want you to see right from the get-go what the address is. 
Here's what Peter says. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father, if you call on him as father. Now, look at what he says just before that in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed. There are certainly times as children were disobedient, but please don't miss the established relationship between God the Father and those whom He has chosen and called and saved with gracious mercy and love. The relationship is established if you are in Christ. So, if you call on Him as Father, meaning if you then reckon yourself to be one who is genuinely Biblically speaking, a child of God, an adopted child of God who has genuinely been born again, who has genuinely been adopted into his family, if that's the case, read on. Consider. If you call on him as, as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Throughout the time of your exile, now, we've already established that the time of exile, as he goes back and says, he's talking to the, the believers that are in uh, these churches in Asia Minor, verses 1 and 2, and these are people who are, he, he calls them elect exiles. And even though they are outside of Jerusalem and, and what they would know, this is a mixed church. This is a church that's very much mixed with Greco-Roman. They're not just exiles from a particular geographic location. They are exiles, spiritually speaking. This is a collection of believers from all walks of life, very unique situation in Asia Minor with Greco-Roman as well as Jews who had come out of the dispersion, out of the persecution in the earliest parts of the church. They all come together, but he's addressing all of them as elect exiles, those who have truly been born again, who are gathered together for the purpose of worshiping, following, and obediently hoping in God while in a really messed up world, but together. So when he, sa he says, while you were in your exile, he is not saying there is relief to this exilic period in this world. Because everything between verse 1 and where we are now, he has talked about this inheritance that's waiting where he is. He is keeping it for us. And while we are here, he's preparing us to receive it and to receive it well. Okay? So let's just remember that. Hang on to that. So he says, conduct yourselves with holy living, motivated by, yes, a sense of fear while we are in exile. And we'll talk about what that means. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Don't miss the end game aim of this passage and why he is saying that we need to live holy lives, not just because as we looked at last week, it reflects the character and the nature of who God is, but another reason is to know that we do actually live before a father who is actually a judge. He does assess our deeds 
But it's going to be in light of several important things, knowing that if we will live holy lives, even knowing that we have a holy God that we are before and living before, not performing for, but living before, the end game here is that our faith and our hope increase all the more in God, which is so much of what just 1 Peter is about. While we are living in a persecuted world, while we are living in exile, not home yet, we are to live holy lives. Why? Because holiness actually fuels and expresses that we have hope in a world to come. Holiness essentially is living otherworldly. It's living by a standard that is not according to the world's. So when the scriptures say, do this, don't do this, or when Paul says, put this off and then put this on, he is speaking from that otherworldly perspective of this is what the believer does. This is how the believer speaks. This is not just the ends, but this is also the means. This is how we conduct our business. This is how we go about our lives. And it's going to look very different than this world because we're exiles, because we are foreigners, we are sojourners, we are ambassadors. This is not home. And in this, in this pursuit, we have to see that holiness actually is an expression of the fact that we find hope in that world to come. Okay? Because we're looking forward to seeing Christ. We're looking forward to faith giving way to sight. Both in relief of pain here, but also in the realization of what eternity means with the one who has saved us. So as we look at this, so we think about these things. Also understand this. When we are unholy in our conduct, when we essentially give in to sin, when we basically adopt the practices, the morals, the social practices of our day and our world, what people make home for themselves here, when we do that, we're actually showing that we have at least for a moment, if not for a season, lost hope. We've lost hope, we've lost perspective that Christ is to come, but we've also lost perspective that he is present even now. He is here. And again, the implications there are strong because for those of you who are trapped and riddled by sin, especially habitual or some kind of ongoing sin, again this week, just like last week, I want you to remember that if, if anything, you need to... Uh, Yes, you need to have the disciplines. Yes, you need to do some things that will radically change your pursuit and your practices. Do something to break up those sinful patterns, of course. But what you also need to do deeply, you need to do the deep work and that requires the word and prayer, sometimes even fasting. But certainly it also <clears throat> means the community of saints needs to come around you. You need a deep infusion, a deep reminder, <clears throat> excuse me, of the hope that we have in Christ. Sin is such a lie because sin tells us there is pleasure and hope in it. When you fill back in those gaps with the hope that is in Christ alone as a believer, you are exposing the lie for what it is and it carries no weight. In fact, it's not just a waste of time but it's a waste of worship. It's a waste of love. It's, and, and it really causes you to feel incredibly empty. And, and when you then realize that it, what you have then missed is not just moral behavior and not really just a clean conscience, what you've missed is actually worshiping and obeying the Christ who has saved you. Then you get closer to what real repentance looks like. It's not just feeling bad for what you've done. 
It is wanting to be restored to the one that you've done it to. Because you are re-infused with a view of his beauty and his glory. I think that's what Peter very much is doing here. If you call on him as father, we have an ever-present father. Verse 17. Just two points. The first one is simple. As living in exiles, if we're going to walk in holy fear, and what that means biblically, we need to first realize that we have an ever-present father. Now, what does that mean? Well, he says, and if you call on him, I've already said this is qualifying. So if you don't call on him as father, then he is still simply before you as judge. And you need to ask yourself even this morning, on what basis am I going to be judged? Because if you do not call on him as father, which means this, if you do not have Jesus Christ as your savior, on what basis are you going to be judged? Are, are, are you able to be weighed on the scales of his justice and be okay? Because the only one that was able to do that in history was Jesus. It's never been about, are you better than your mom, your dad, so-and-so, have you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps? The question always is, are you as good as Jesus? You say, well, of course not. That's not fair. Exactly. It's not. Fairness would be every human ever born being judged and consigned to hell. Honestly, guys, that's justice because our God is holy. Our God is true. And his goodness would not be the ignorance of sin and sinful practice. But what he does instead is offer mercy. The fact that any of us are born again is an incredible act. Infinitely an act of God's grace and mercy. So if you call on him as father, if you are truly born again, it doesn't dismiss the fact that he is judged. But remember this, and we're not going to get into eschatology, which is the view of the end times. But understand this very simply, that there are those who will be weighed accordingly for those who did not come to faith in Christ, who rejected him, and they will be judged, and that will be an eternal judgment. And it will be only based on whether or not they, sh- they express faith in him while in this world. There's no post-mortem opportunities. They will be judged. The believer is not judged on that basis. The believer is judged on the basis of the shed blood of Christ, which is entrance into his kingdom. However, we will still be assessed on our deeds. I do not know what that looks, feels, or sounds like. There's nothing in scripture that actually supports that we would feel regret for having not done more. Or even if we did for just a nanosecond, then it would be enraptured by the fact that Christ was still yet sufficient in our lack of having done good works. But our entrance into the kingdom is not based on our good works if indeed we are in Christ Jesus. But we are still judged by our deeds. There is still the wood, hay, and stubble that will be burned, not just as we go through this world, but even at the end of time, he will still assess our deeds. I'll put it like this. And I love that the prospect is here of him as father. Think about it when you were a little kid Let's say you're watching TV late at night. You didn't know that dad was up. And then dad walks in the room. How did you feel? Now, for some of you, that actually provokes a a really awful sense. Maybe it really did go deeply south for you in in those moments. So I'm not trying to tap on any kind of deep-seated pain that you've experienced. I'm just simply saying there's a sense that when dad would walk in the room or be in the room, there was accountability. If you call on him as father who also judges impartially. So 
I've been reflecting a ton on my dad in times with my dad as a kid. And one of the things I remember that, you know, dad and I shared a love for cars. We never really worked on cars together, but we loved cars. And part of that came from watching a lot of TV shows back in the day that always had some kind of iconic cars. And one of, and this will, some of you will remember this show and others of you, it will, it will date just ex- how incredibly old I really am. But my dad and I used to watch the Rockford Files all the time. We would watch the Rockford Files and I still remember the tune in my head of the beginning of the Rockford Files. And for some reason, as this little, why he was letting me watch, you know, a crime show is funny, but still, uh, I was seven, eight, nine years old. I would just get up and dance to this thing, but I, then I would stop as soon as his, because he had a pretty cool Camaro. And so there was, we would, I would stop and just look at it and gawk at it. But every once in a while in, in the Rockford Files, um, you know, someone would say the D word. And I remember my first inclination as a nine nine or 10 year old was to turn around and look at my dad's reaction. Now, I wasn't looking for, was that okay? I wanted to basically see how mortified he was that I actually heard the D word, because it's really bad. And uh, yeah, Jonathan's laughing. I mean, I just took Jonathan to Fenway. He doesn't even realize all that he's just heard. So um, I'm not kidding, but it's true. But, you know, as I was going through this message, I was just reflecting on how many times that would happen along the way. I remember watching the Omega Man with Charlton Heston with my dad. That's a scary movie, even even then. Really pale, pasty looking people. If you've seen it, great. If not, then if you saw I Am Legend with Will Smith, you saw the same story. But frightening movie, even for a kid, still remember the same thing. I remember Planet of the Apes. I introduced my son to Planet of the Apes recently. A couple of D, H's that fly. I would look at dad every single time. How am I supposed to react, dad? Because I know that's not okay. You don't allow that in our house. There's a bit of a motif here that I think is helpful that keeps us hemmed in on what it means to have reverential holy fear in our conduct. He's first addressed positionally as father. Now, I'm not trying to lessen the meaning of scripture here on the idea of him being our heavenly father. But I do think that motif works for us to understand that it's about the presence of a holy and pure and loving father as, as we are then as children looking to him as the standard. Looking to him as the one who then even gives us our cues on how we should respond when that standard is not met. Even in the littlest ways of a child hearing words they're, they're not supposed to say, but they hear it with their dad in the room. And there's that hiccup, there's that stop, there's that pause, there's that look back at, dad, what, that's, that's not, and then we, you know, just keep watching. But this relationship of the adopted child, this security, it gives us this idea of how it's hemmed in, that this is about reverence, it's about awe, it's about dependency on the father and his standard and understanding that yes, there is a judgment because it's one thing for me to have been in the room when that was said. It would be a whole nother thing altogether. Altogether. If I said it. Same person, same standard. But then there's a conversation. Then I have to go back. And my parents had seeds of, of, of dead twigs that would grow in every house we ever lived in. Magically. I could go back and there was a switch and there was a dead, I don't know how it grew. There was never green on it, but I was told to go get something in the backyard, a switch or whatever. And um, 
I, I, it was always there. As much as I tried to remove them, they were always replaced. I, I don't know how it happened. Maybe that will tell you how infrequently I actually disobeyed because I was such a, a gentle, loving son. Um, I hate it when my kids laugh harder than anyone. God is impartial in this. He doesn't play favorites with any of his children because the standard is himself. The standard isn't what his kids can do for him. The standard is just simply his nature, his character. It's an impartial judgment assessment of our deeds, yes. So when we are going through our life as children, yes, established relationship, yes, we are children, we have a father, nothing can undo that relationship. I don't have time to go into, even in the Greco-Roman and Hebrew world, what adoption meant. The consequences, I'll just say this much though, in those cultures, both of them, if you went through the process of actual adoption, the rights that were given to those children were actually greater than the birthrights given to the children of those families because of the choices and the costs that were incurred in order to do so. And also the payment that would have to be done on the parents' heads if the adopted children actually did something to break the laws. It was even greater than natural born children. The established relationship is secure, it's there. But there still is this God that is holy and pure and good and true who is a standard and he does still judge our actions. So as we are working through as exiles in this world to understand one thing that we have an ever-present father, it helps shape the understanding of fear, which means before this one who has adopted me, why would I want to violate, I can't break it, but why would I want to violate the fellowship that I have with this father who has adopted me so? There should be a fear of, yes, there, are, there is an assessment. There's an impartial judgment. But part of that is who's doing the judging? My father. Now, again, I'm not saying live in perpetual dis, you know, sense of disappointment. Oh, I'm disappointing him. I'm not saying that. But I am saying if it can help curb unholy behavior and help you pursue and launch you into holy living while you're in exile, remember, one day you're going to see this father face to face. He has done so much for you, which is exactly where he's going next. Let it be a fear, not necessarily of disappointing, certainly not disjointing the relationship between you and the Father, and not in a disappointing sense, again, as far as perpetual kind of wimpiness in your walk with Him, but at least this healthy sense of this is my holy, good, and gracious dad. I don't want to mess that up, to any, even just to a little degree, just because of who He is. Remember, guys, when it comes to this holy charge in this section of Scripture, Peter didn't start here. He didn't start with fear as a motivator. The first thing he started with was what we looked at last week, which was God being by nature holy. We were just reflecting, but he still talked a whole lot about what it meant to be born again. So you still have this deep-seated, in response to grace, desire, and because of who he is, I get to now reflect that in this world, who God is. But the second motivator he gives us is this one on fear. So he presupposes that you have established he is a good, holy, that's his nature. I want to do it for that reason. That doesn't work in a sense. Not saying that's perfectly like that. That's not how Peter works, but there's a sense of that. If that doesn't motivate you enough, there is at least this baseline of fear of you don't want to mess up this relationship with this beautiful God, which means one of the best things you can do in curbing sinful behavior is to know God deeper. It's to know something about the characteristic of God. Earlier, Brandon mentioned the book, Knowing God. I mean, it, I, I don't know what, how many books are right behind the Bible for me, but knowing God has always been in the top two or three right behind the Bible on how important that is by J.I. Packer. 
Because Packer is not merely kind of systematic and even though he is, but he's not merely systematic or stiff in his approach to what it means. There's very much a worship and an obedience response to this gracious and sovereign God that you're getting to know in his book as he points you to the scriptures. Read Knowing God. I mean, if you're struggling with a particular besetting sin, hack it by reading Knowing God. Get to know this God better that, that you essentially are railing against in your sin and your lack of hope and be reminded that he is worth hoping in. And see if that doesn't give you a holy distaste for habitual sin. I think you'll find freedom. Do this. So conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile because he's your father. That relationship is established. He does see everything. He will judge our deeds. He is ever present. He's always there. That's his nature. But then he goes to this in verse 18 through 21. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So not only do we have an ever-present father, we do have an ever-present or ever-precious, I would say, savior. Because he says, we were not saved with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Our ever-present father should provoke much in us for obedience. But then he goes further and says, you also have this ever-precious Savior who saved you. This holy God who judges and has all of the rights therein to be a right, never could be unjust God. Judge everything one way or the other. Either it gets judged by the blood of Christ or it will get judged by those who rejected that and are then consigned to eternal damnation in hell. But every sin, every practice will be accounted for because he's judge. But if you call on him as father, remember, for your obedience sake, not only is he there as father, he's also there as this precious savior. And, and the way he paints this picture, it's ever. It cannot be undone. It's eternal. So remember that as well as you conduct yourself while you're in exile in this world in holy living. Let's talk about this. In verse 18, he says, knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. He basically is saying this. He says, so if you call on him as father who judges impartially, then live this way while you're in exile. And knowing, knowing this, or basically here's what we know. Here's what we know about this father. Here's what we know about this Godhead who has saved us. That he has saved us. Remember back in the very beginning, he has caused us to be born again. His sovereign and gracious action, he has saved us. He has adopted us. He has made us his children. What we know is this ransom was paid to free us from the bondage of sin. Just the idea that he uses ransom. Ransom's only used two other times in, in the scriptures. It's a very unique word. There's something about what Peter knows about these people and their perspective of what it means to be born again that he uses this word that's just not used that often in the New Testament. Ransom literally means to be set free from bondage. But it's interesting because the, the way it means for their culture is for, a, is for a slave, okay, to basically pay off 
whatever the, the, the set cost was for their freedom, basically. It's not just indentured servant kind of thing. It is true slavery. But the fact was back then, slavery wasn't based merely on ethnicity. It was anyone who was in a situation where that was their only way out. Or, yes, it could have been a group of people who, you know, just like in the Old Testament where you had the the Egyptians with the Israelites. But what's going on in their society, it was pretty much any and all that they could grab to be a slave. They would make a slave and they would put a price tag on their eventual freedom. The idea wasn't necessarily for them to be slaves for the whole time, but to basically work, pay it off, and then whatever allotted amount on top of that payoff, then they could be set free. And generally, the slave owners, basically what they would do is just treat them like capital because then by that time, they would be probably too old to do them any good and they would just rotate it and get someone younger. But the idea here of ransom is the price was paid plus any and all on top of that that would actually afford the freedom of this person from their enslavement. He says that this God has ransomed us from something for something. You've been set free from being in bondage to sin. If you do not call on God as father, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are literally a slave to your sinful life and sinful practices. Not just sins as far as a a litany, sinful practices, sinful thinking. You are a slave to sin. You are doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. You think you're free, but you're not. You are a slave. For those who call on him as father, he has set them free from that bondage. This again starts to fill in the blanks of what does reverential fear look like? If you know you've been set free, it should cause this sense of the, the, the thing basically that would give the most honor to the one who's done this, the father, is to basically live free. You've been set free, so live free. It is for freedom's sake that you've been set free. This ransom has been paid to set us free. But free from what? From the feudal ways inherited. Now he's probably talking about the Greco-Roman side of things in the church as far as they certainly had sinful practices in even their religions. There were sex goddesses. There were practices going on even in their acts of worship that were vile, that were immoral behavior. He may be referring to that, but the fact is we don't actually truly know. I do know this. I certainly know that he, believe, that he is saying on the deepest level, he's talking about inherent sin, that everyone is born sinful. And we are all slaves to that inherent sinful nature. But he sets us free from that. We're not bound to that. We don't have to. And because he's done it, and then where he goes next on how he did it, it should provoke in us a distaste for wanting to share in those things that we did before. Or if you were saved like me as a young kid, that you've at least done enough of to get an idea of what it would be like if you did not have Jesus. You don't have to be all that creative to figure out what you do, what you'd be like, what you'd think like. He has set us free from these feudal ways. He set us free from the bondage of sin. We were bound, now we are free if you call on him as father. So the ransom was paid to free us from bondage. The ransom also was paid with the blood of Christ. Verse 19, it was not paid for with perishable things such as silver or gold. 
thing that's funny is those metals actually aren't perishable on an earthly standard. They can only kind of change forms. You can't fully and totally destroy them. And yet for them, they knew them to be the most precious things possible in, as a commodity in their society. And even the best of the perishable things is not what you were bought with. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. There's nothing that we have access to as human beings that could pay off God or pay the debt of our sin to acquire the inheritance of being a child of God. There's nothing we have access to. No good acts, no good deeds, no church, no, no number of church services, nothing. No, certainly no political parties or anything else. There's nothing we could hitch our horse to, so to speak, that will get us there. Nothing. Everything else dies. Everything else is perishable. There is nothing that is satisfactory. Just go read Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Even the best of what they had to offer was not sufficient to pay the price for sin. Not long term. Only Christ and his blood. But look at how he puts it together. He uses this word precious, which literally means it's valuable, it's esteemed, it's honorable. It paid the price. So it's precious, yes, in the sense of honor and esteem, but it also is precious in the sense of it was enough. It was enough and not bare minimum. It was the maximum. Because before a holy God who has no sin or its effects touching him whatsoever, it required complete, thorough, total, and eternal cleansing. Or we have no access. We are not. There's no one calling upon him as father. He was without blemish or spot, sinless. First 40 days of his, of his life or pre-ministry, 40 days, temptation by Satan in the wilderness, no food, yet without sin. Went through the rest of his life, no sin. Scourged, beaten, unjustly treated, no sin. Not in thought, not in deed, not in grumbling, nothing. He was perfect. He was and is God. And as he then became the lamb sacrificed for us, it was exactly what God required by nature. Not because he's being mean and trying to create an impossible situation. It is impossible because of who he is. Not because he's mean, but in saving us so, this is the God, this is the savior, this is the lamb that we sin against when we pursue unholy things. Can you feel the weight of what reverential fear looks like in that regard? You're thinking about him as father. You're thinking about him as savior. And it's filling in the blanks and the weight of, oh, it's just this one time I'm just going to sin. No, we need to fill it up with the gravity, not again of losing your salvation or losing your relationship with him, but what it means to violate the fellowship that we have with this God. We need to feel that weight. like a lamb. Whereas earlier when he said the feudal ways of your forefathers, he may have been referring to Greco-Roman here when he refers to Christ as like a lamb. He certainly is attaching to some of the Hebrew followers of the churches. He's talking to both groups. But whether Greek or Jew, they needed a lamb-like sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ or no one calls on him as father. 
If anything, it shows the exclusivity of the fact that whether you are Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you're going to call on him as father, it is only because on the basis of him being the lamb sacrifice for you, period. It's not because you're Jewish, not because you have a great Greco-Roman history or great family name. Nothing. Or a lot of wealth. Mm-mm. Only on the basis of him being the lamb. The ransom was paid with Christ's blood. But the ransom paid was by an eternal one. Look at verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ is pre-existent God. Okay? He's not a break off. He's not just a different form of who God is. Yes, it, the, the Trinity is an absolute mystery for most of us. Really for all of us, if we're honest. But we still assert what to be true, which is it is three distinct persons, but one God. I know it sounds like a, a word trick, and I don't fully understand it either. I know what it doesn't mean. I know it doesn't mean that like, you know, um, liquid, uh, solid liquid gas. I know it's not modalism in the sense that here's God, and sometimes he whoosh, appears like Jesus, and then whoosh, it's smoky and very spirit-like at Pentecost. I don't know why Pentecost is real smoky, but that's the way it is. Um, that's, not, that's not what the Trinity means. They are three distinct persons, so they're all God. They're all persons. And when we start to piece together what Scripture says, when God said, let there be light, in Genesis 1, you zoom over to Colossians chapter 1 and you start to realize it was Christ who went into the vacuum of what we would, might call space or the cosmos and actually does all the work. By him, through him, for him. Doesn't mean that God himself couldn't have done it. It just means that Christ did the actual work, just like he does in our salvation. Faith is spoken, but then what happens? God who is there before time and we are saved, even in him before time, that shows you just how secure you are in Jesus Christ. He then comes in time to do the work necessary for what God said before time was to be done. God decided that what would give him the most glory, not because like a Greek, like a Greek God, he needed the worship of puny little humans that he made. No, not at all. To show and spread out his glory, God decided before the foundation of the earth that what would do that would be to basically show him redeeming sinful men. I don't understand how all that played out. My biggest question has to do with Satan and the fall. And those aren't questions I get answered in the scriptures fully. But it also doesn't thwart my following of Jesus. Because what I know is what the scriptures say, which he goes on and says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. He appeared, he showed up in the last times for the sake of you. It's Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He showed up. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Even though he shared in his nature, he shared in his person, he was God. But instead, he deferred his privileges of being in the kingdom. He deferred his privileges of being at the right hand of the Father and physiologically then came and took on flesh to accomplish what was necessary for you and I to be able to call on him as Father, as Peter says. In time, he did this. He pierced history to do this work. It was actually historically accomplished. This ransom was paid by an eternal one and ransom was paid in real time. 
But then the ransom was verified forever, verse 21, who through him are believers in God. So again, that's the only path, that's the exclusivity, but here's how it gets confirmed, affirmed, validated, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Our ransom was paid by an eternal one in real time, but then verified and confirmed for all time. It was sufficient. There's no other sacrifice, there's no other God, there's no other prophet, none other has ever been killed in this way and certainly never has been raised from the dead. This is Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no way to the Father, there is no way to heaven, there is no way to the inheritance but through the person of Jesus Christ. Whether you are Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. It's impartial. You are going to be judged accordingly. And if you then have Christ, that eternal judgment has been satisfied in Christ, but your behavior will still be assessed by him for his glory and his goodness. And while you're living as exiles in this world, please consider he is your father. He has adopted you and he's adopted you via the precious blood of his son. And let that weight fall on you the next time you are tempted to look at pornography on your phone or the next time you're tempted to get angry and scream at a friend who is a Democrat. (laughs) Oh, we laugh, but you do it on Facebook. I'm not even on Facebook and I can say it prophetically. Do it the next time that you are propagating Lies and falsehood, bearing false witness to news that has no validity whatsoever, no science whatsoever, and you're propping it up as biblical truth. I'm not mad at you. I am saying, let the weight of a holy, precious Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, who saved us with his very life and was raised from the dead, let that weight fall and ask yourself, is this really all that important? Does this really show forth the hope that I have in the world to come? No, because the more riled up we get about things in this world, we're proving that our hope is here. And there's nothing here to hold on to. So while you are exiles living out in this world with this holy reverential fear before this one who is absolutely to be revered, let it change how you act. Let it change how you live. Let it change what you look at. And guys, let me remind you, because he says here at the end, so that your faith and hope are in God. When you live faithfully, it's not as if your faith and hope in God increases because, oh, I'm so holy. (laughs) The more biblically you understand it, you realize, man, there is nothing in me naturally that wants to live this way, but I'm so happy to live this way because of Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Is a humble, holy adoration kind of thing. But we've all blown it, right? Haven't haven't so many of us, even in this room, shown our hopeless grasp and, and patience of waiting to see the glory in the kingdom of heaven and just had a fit of lust or had a fit of rage? Haven't we at different times? Of course we all have. Our recovery and our forgiveness is found in the very reasons that we should live holy lives. He's your father. Let the little children come to me. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Confess your sins to your holy dad, your holy father. He's already forgiven you, but experience it again in real time. 
What Jesus did on the cross was sufficient, not just for all your sin prior to conversion, but for everything you would do in unfaithfulness since then, until kingdom come. And be forgiven. Come to this Father who cannot cast you out. Come to the precious Christ who with his precious blood save you and remind yourself that blood was sufficient even for what happened last night. For even what I said to my sister, to my brother, to my mom, my dad, my uncle, to this person I don't even know on Facebook and just got tired of what they had to say. He can forgive you. He will forgive you. What he did on the cross was enough still. Remind yourself of these things. Find your relief and your solace in the very thing that should be driving you to living holy. Look, if you're here today and as I've said, you don't really call on God as Father, I want to encourage you to visit with one of us. I'm actually going to ask our elders to find their way to a different place in the room. Um, They're just going to be scattered throughout different places in the room. You see some of them getting up even now. Guys, I encourage you to go find an elder and visit with them. Say, you know what, I don't, maybe you didn't even understand much of what I've said, but you know something in you has been messed with. And you know that you need to speak to somebody about what it means to call on God as Father. Basically, you're saying, what do I need to do to be saved? Or what does that even mean? Even if you're not ready today, have the conversation. Or maybe you're a Christian and you realize, I've been living an unholy lifestyle. And honestly, I've been keeping it a secret or whatever. Look, you don't need a priest. You have that already in Jesus. These elders are not priests. But Scripture still, though, encourages us to go and confess our sins to one another that we might find healing. These guys are safe. They will not share that information. I mean, if we felt like it needed to be shared just with elders, but it's not going out to others, we want you to be prayed for. We want you to find the joy of holy living so that your hope increases. Whatever the case is, maybe you even find that you're hopeless because you are so riddled with pain, physical pain and illness and sickness, and you need someone to pray for your healing. We're not afraid to pray for healing, guys. Go to an elder and ask him. No, they don't have some neosporin ointment or oil in their pockets. They're not going to put that on your head. There's not going to be anything like that, so don't fear. But they probably will put their hand on your shoulder and pray for you. Because we want you to be healed in this world, but we also know that ultimate healing, God may not do it, but we're going to pray and ask that he does. But if he chooses not to, we know there's some reason behind that, that you get to share with the world even though you're hurting. And that's a great encouraging reminder if that's what the Lord chooses. Whatever the case is, don't let the truth of this passage today not have some effect on you. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the truth of it. We're grateful for the impact that it has in our lives because of the working of the Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that um, anything that I've said that's been superfluous, anything that I've said that's not been consistent with your word, that you would just weed those things out in the hearts and minds of the hearers and even me. And I just pray that what is absolute true, absolutely true would remain. And that Holy Spirit, you would accomplish and bear the fruit even in this room that you would desire to bear as a result of your word being proclaimed. Do your work even now, Lord, even as we respond and sing and have our benediction, let your work go forth. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.